Whoa, I'm being attacked up here. <laughs> Too many cords everywhere. Well, uh, like I said, when I, when I walked into the sanctuary today, there's just kind of a buzz about this place, and it could be for any number of reasons, but I hope one of them might be because uh, we're nearing uh, the day that we kind of set aside to remember that Jesus came into the world in order to save sinners. And what Paul says is of whom I am I'm the chief of sinners, right? And so all the hope and all the peace and all the love that we talk about today has only been made available to us in Jesus Christ. And so I hope that that is one of the reasons why there's a buzz in this place today. Um, sometimes we fail to notice beauty. Um, maybe it's because you've been here your whole life. I don't know, but I'm from Chicago. So when I get to see, uh, you know, blueberry fields turning a color about the end of fall, I'm just like, it's amazing, right? Like the red in the fields and with the backdrop of the mountains uh, in the distance. And maybe it's the ocean or maybe uh, it's the contour of your spouse's smile or the color of their eyes. Or maybe it's the laughter of your kids, all of it can become so common, and sometimes we fail to notice the beauty that's all around us. And so today, um, what we're going to be doing today is we're talking about maybe a, maybe there's nothing more foundational or ground level concept that is talked about more often in Christian circles than what we talk about today. The lingo that we use today is very familiar lingo and very common. But I pray that none of us fail to notice its beauty today as we talk about love. What we talk about today is really no mystery. It's repeated and referenced nearly probably on every page of Scripture. And it's this. God loves you. I just want to let that sit for a moment because it becomes so common and we fail to see its beauty in this three-word sentence, but listen to it. God loves you. Now when I say that, I think immediately there's three dangers that kind of pop up in our minds. There's three dangerous lines of thinking that we might fall into when we hear this phrase, God loves you. Danger number one is this. I know He loves me. Of course He does. Who wouldn't? Right? <laughs> it kind of sounds funny to say it out loud, but I think it's important to say it out loud and to hear the foolery so that we don't quietly and secretly think that it's absurd to think in this way. Some of us, and probably most of us at times in the room, think that we're quote-unquote all that, or of course God loves me, what's not to love, right? And if you honestly think that way and you want to be brought back to reality really quick, turn and ask the person that question next to you, right? Ask that question to the person next to you. Is there, what's not to love, you know? You'll be brought back to reality pretty quick, all right? So that's one danger, dangerous line of thinking you could have. Another one is this. The second danger, I think, is actually probably where most of us spend a significant amount of time. 
When we hear the phrase, God loves you, we sadly spend a lot of time thinking this, how in the world could he love me? Of course he doesn't love me, how could he? Because we know our frailties, we know our insecurities, we know our sins, we know how we've missed the mark, we're constantly reminded of our shortcomings, we're either reminded by ourselves or by others or by looking at God's law itself, and we think, I could never, never, ever measure up to what's being put on me, and if I can't measure up, then my worth must be diminished, and if I'm not worth very much, then I can't be loved. And God has infinite knowledge, so surely He can't love me because I can't measure up to what He expects of me. So I fall so, so short. So, of course, He doesn't love me. How could He? Dangerous thinking number two. And the final one is this. I call it the danger of indifference. When you hear that phrase, God loves you, and I pause, and there's just this somber reality that sits on the crowd here, and you think, yeah, who cares? Or we say, I know that, right? But it doesn't really sink into your psyche or your reality at all. You might think that you've become so familiar with this concept that you might feel like you've graduated from it or mastered it, mastered the concept in some way. You've known of this for so long that you've just taken it for granted or just assumed that it was something that was owed to you and we become anesthetized to its powerful working. It's become so familiar and part of our jargon that we think we got it, so to speak. And so those are three dangers that can happen. Whatever camp you might be in today, whether you think you somehow deserve the love of God, or if you think knowing what you know about yourself, there's no way that God could love you, or if you're anywhere on the spectrum in between, this is an elemental teaching that is something that you cannot ever graduate from. And if you think that this is just, you have an indifference toward, if you think it's just a boring or humdrum, yeah, God loves me, I want you to know that so is breathing. It's kind of boring, kind of humdrum. So is a heartbeat. But try living without them and see how well you do. The love of God is the building block for everything in your life and in my life everything that our lives were meant to be constructed on. So I hope that I've made it abundantly clear how important and universal this concept is. Have I made myself clear that all of us need to hear this message today? You can say yes if you want to. Yes, just make me feel good, right? (laughs) So once again, listen to this. God loves you. I wish I could take time and just have you all come into my office and just sit down and we'll have five minutes and I'll just say that phrase to you, God loves you. And when you start to divert your eyes because it's awkward, I said, no, God loves you. God loves you. With the arrival of Jesus to this planet, God made himself more palpably known to us and we can have hope and we can have peace that we've looked at over the last few weeks But today we're going to be filled with the calm assurance that he loves us. The prophet Zephaniah once wrote to calm the nerves of God's people by reminding them that God was in their midst. The Rafferty family read this verse. Look at it. It says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you by his love. 
And He will exult over you with loud singing. Listen, some of you come here this morning and you have very loud voices screaming in your head all the time. And you need to have a prevailing voice that is slow and steady and always running in the background of your mind that can act like white noise that will eventually drown out all the other sound in its competition for your attention. And that song is this, God can quiet you by His love. And when you are finally quieted, you will be able to hear His voice exulting over you with loud singing and His just sheer delight in you. And it's going to be a lovely song. God loves you. So, with our time today, we want to ask a few questions. Two questions in particular. One is this. What does it mean that we are loved by God? And the second question is, what does it mean to love God in return? So let's go for the first one. Let's pray first. God, we need your help now. Um, as we seek to open up the scriptures and kind of travel through a lot of different places to see in a general way how love is defined and then how we are to love in return. God, I pray that you'd be pleased with our efforts here to learn more about your love and that you would do the work of quieting us by your love. God, many of us have very loud voices screaming in our head at all the time and we need to hear your prevailing voice that's slow and steady that can act like a white noise that will eventually drown out all the other sounds that are competing for our attention. God, we need to be quieted by your love today, and I pray that you would do so as we seek to answer these questions. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be loved by God? That's our first question today. Sounds very simple, very basic, very elemental, but none of us have graduated from it, so let's ask the question, what does it mean to be loved by God? Well, Paul tells the Romans... In Romans 5, 5, it says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. So Paul says that He has filled us up by giving Himself, by being self-giving. And that's how we defined love during our Attributes of God series that we went through this last year. We said that God is disposed to being self-giving for our good. It's in His nature to seek after our well-being. He is the one who has manifested His love for us when He gave Himself to us and for us. He's clearly demonstrated His love for us that while we were still sinners and enemies of the Son, the Son was given to us. Look at Romans 5, 8 through 10. It'll be on the screen. Paul says, but God shows His love. That means something. Love has to be witnessed and demonstrated. But God shows His love. Here's my love. How? For us. And while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, sinners and enemies, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. This is an incredible claim. 
Paul says that everyone in this room either was or still are sinners against God and enemies of God. But God loves us still and is disposed to be self-giving for our good by giving His Son. Love sees a need and then does everything necessary to meet the need to its fullest extent. Consider the famous, often quoted John 3.16. It'll be on the screen. Look at this. Don't just become so familiar with it that you're not shocked by its beauty. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love was demonstrated by the giving of the Son. And really that word giving is really just a stand-in for the word sacrificed. There was a debt that we had accumulated and that needed to be paid for, and the precious blood of Jesus footed the bill for us. So listen, later on in this gathering, we're going to grab for the elements of communion. And we're not just grabbing a conveniently packaged cracker and an ounce of grape juice that costs about a quarter. Yes, that might be what we're tangibly grabbing, but what we're really grabbing are symbolic representations of something that is of infinitely more valuable infinitely more valuable what we're grabbing remember those old mastercard commercials right if we had one of those queued up right now that would be appropriate if you don't remember it here's the formula they'd say something like this this costs this much this costs this much that costs this much and then there'd be some sort of dramatic pause that led to some sort of experience of inestimable value like watching a baseball game with your son or whatever it might be. And then they would say, that's priceless. And then they'd hit you with this classic line, there are some things that money cannot buy, but for everything else, there's... There you go. I'm getting endorsements as we speak. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Look, we've all incurred, incurred a debt that even MasterCard can't cover, and it's a debt that must be paid in full, and we don't have the funds to pay for it. But thankfully, Jesus paid for it, and He obtained us by His own blood, as Peter tells the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And Peter later on in the biblical narrative writes to a group of people and assumes that his readers understand how costly Jesus' blood was when he writes this. Look at 1 Peter 1.18. Knowing there's something that they needed to know or he's assuming that they know how costly the blood of Jesus was. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold. Last time I checked, those are pretty high, high sought-after commodity. Those are good things, silver and gold, very valuable, but with the precious blood of Jesus, of the Christ, of the Lamb who was without blemish or spot. So I was thinking about this this week. If I came down your chimney on Christmas Eve and I filled your stockings with a whole bunch of silver and gold you might experience a few different emotions. 
Number one, you might be amazed that I fit in your chimney, right? You probably feel violated since I entered into your house without your permission. But if you dumped out your stocking in the morning and realized that I've just made you a potential multimillionaire, I think you'd experience a little bit of happiness and gratitude as well, right? Trust me, I won't do that, right? I don't want to get arrested. I don't have the means to do that. I'd love to, but I can't. But right now, what I'm speaking of and about and offering to you by the means of this preached word today is of way more value. You were ransomed. You were redeemed with the long-lasting, imperishable, precious blood of Jesus. And so when we grab for these communion elements, you are grabbing and then possessing and then internalizing symbolic representations of what has already been applied to your account. Your debt of sin has been paid for. And more than that, you have been given the very righteousness of Christ Himself. So that if you could just close your eyes for a moment and imagine God's face toward you right now, what you would see is the contour of the biggest smile you've ever seen appearing on his face because of what he sees in you. Because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So do not drink in an unworthy manner. You better understand the debt that you've accumulated and that the precious blood of Jesus, the slain Son of God, gave for you. Because He loves you. And you are loved, and it's not based on your performance. You are just loved because you have been made lovely by the perfect love and the perfect Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world which you have accumulated. That's why you're loved, not based off of what you've done. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son, that He sacrificed His Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If you only knew, if I only knew how dearly loved we are by God, I think that would annihilate all the insecurities and the fears that we have that keep us from living lives that are fully surrendered to Him. He knows you. He sees you. He's actually provided for you. He chose you. And it's because He loves you. The dimensions of God's love are comically massive and immeasurable. I don't think we have any idea how loved we are by Him. And I was mulling over this with the staff the other day. And I was thinking about these kind of astronomical dimensions. Remember the story of the ark? Remember reading that maybe for the first time or if you've ever been to like the museum in Kentucky where they constructed a life-size you know, ratio, one-to-one ratio of the ark? It's like, it's big. It's really big. You're like, how in the world, right? The dimensions of the ark are astounding. And that's at the very beginning of the book. And at the very end of the book, remember the, the heavenly city that comes down and they give you the dimensions of the city and like, oh my goodness, that is a very, 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 very big city. The dimensions of the heavenly city are eye-popping, and they're astonishing. 
These are all very massive and astounding, hard to wrap your mind around realities to the point where you even begin to question if this is just hyperbolic speech. Really? Really that big? That big of a boat? That big of a city? That can't be. You know? And we're blo- if you're blown away by the size of the ark, and if you're blown away by the size of the heavenly city, these nearly unfathomable realities that we find at the beginning of the book and at the very end of the book, then prepare to be dumbstruck by what you find in the middle of the book. Because in the middle of the book, Paul prays for the Ephesians this prayer. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why? Why all this working? Why all this power? This intercession of God? Why? So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in what? In love. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the full love of Christ that surpasses your knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of God is immeasurable. If you think the ark is big, good. If you think the heavenly city is big and glorious, wow. But though pale in comparison, the, the immeasurable love of God for you. So even though this is very elementary, none of us have even scratched the surface of how dearly loved we are by God. In, in fact, I had a moment of worship as I was pondering this on Monday morning at Avenue Bread. I was overrun with emotion. I'm sitting there and tears start to develop in my teardrops. I didn't want them to drop on the pages, but like, I'm, just, I'm amazed by this. And I just paused for a moment and said, but I have no idea how loved I am by God. He loves me. Not because I'm lovely. Not because I deserve it. And even though I'm dirty and I'm rotten at my core, I am still sought after and I'm fully loved by Him. And when I started to scratch the surface of that, that made me worship to consider the dimensions of God's love. And so I'm actually going to sing a song that references the dimensions of God's love. This is one that kind of came across my life over the last few months and it's ministered to me. And so I just want you to have it sung to you and maybe it will minister to you in a way that is powerful and effective as well. So imagine yourself not deserving of love, but being loved instead and Regardless of what you are or who you are or how you perform, God loves you regardless of that because His love is based off of what Jesus Christ has done for you. So consider these words. never seen your ears they've never heard and your mind cannot conceive your little heart will never 
quite learn the dimensions of the dimensions of my love so wipe the tears away from your eyes and drive the fear away from your mind you have no idea how safe you really are Believe me, what I say is true That I am coming back for you Child, if you only knew How soon, how soon Your eyes have never seen Your ears they've never heard And your mind cannot conceive little heart will never quite learn the dimensions of the dimensions of my love the dimensions of the dimensions of Wipe the tears away from your eyes and drive the fear away from your mind. You have no idea how safe you really are. Believe me, what I say is true that I am coming back for you. And child, if you only knew how soon, how soon. God has for us is not a just enough type of love. It was poured out in abundance and it overflowed to every area of our lives. And the love of God is not just plentiful. It's actually powerfully effective. It doesn't just barely work. 
It's actually compellingly successful. God's love is of a quality of the highest classification. It's pure. It's powerful. It's potent. It's impressive. And that's why John writes in his epistle, and he says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And to translate the classification aspect of God's love, the translators of the NASB and the NIV translate it in this way. They say, see how great a love, not just what kind, but how great the love of the Father has bestowed on us. It's categorically great. And all of what I said is the answer to our first question. What does it mean to be loved by God? And now that we know that, we can move on to answering our second question. What does it mean to love God in return? What does it mean to love God in return? We know that what it means to be loved by God in a self-giving way, in an unconditional way, not because of your performance, but just because He loves you. So what does it mean to love God in return? And I want to start by answering this question by stating something that should be obvious to us. We need to understand order and sequence here. There's no way that we love God or others if we haven't been loved first. And so John writes in 1 John 4:19, we love because he first loved us. You don't have it in you to really truly love unless you recognize that you have been loved first. You don't have it in you. I don't have it in me to love if I weren't first if we weren't first loved by God. Our love for God is responsive in nature. And because we were loved so well by God, our love in return should also be costly and extravagant. So what does that look like? Well, thankfully, we can know exactly what it means because we can observe the specific answer to that question when we look in the Gospel of John. And it was read for us earlier by the Rafferty family, John 14, 15. If you love me, comma, you will keep my commandments. Oh. It's not just enough just to receive the love, but we need to reciprocate that and respond to it by doing something. What Jesus says here is very hard to misunderstand. He is giving an explicit frame of reference regarding what He sees as love. Keep His commandments. If you love Me, comma, keep My commandments. And just in case we missed it, Jesus restates the same teaching by drawing even more attention just five verses later when he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It's not just, well, I got the commandments, but are you keeping them? Jesus equates having and keeping his commands with love. When he sees us doing that which he has instructed, he senses our response of love. His love language, so to speak, is our willingness to hear and then act upon what he has commanded. It reminds us of our study of James. We just looked at this. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So is there any proof of your responsive love for God in your life? This is a question that needs to act like an ice-cold bucket of water being dumped on our heads. This question ought to awaken us 
all of us here today, because how we answer this question will indicate whether or not the love of God has so effectively loved us to the point where we want to love in return. So here it goes. If you love me, come and keep my commandments. Let's just do one commandment today. There's many, but let's just take one and see how we're doing with this one. How are we doing at obeying this one commandment that we find in John 13, 34? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Love one another. He's saying this to his disciples that were in the room with him on the night that he was betrayed. He says to them, hey, have a disposition about yourself that is self-giving for the good of others that are in this room. That's what he tells them. Jesus says, love one another. The people that are in this room right now, in this upper room with us, love one another. So that makes me wonder about this. How are we doing with loving the people that are in this room right now? Jesus follows that up with a clarifying remark. He says, just as I have loved you. Just as, Jesus? Really? Just as. Well, how have you been loved by Jesus? Well, John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Just as means you look at the people in this upper room, the disciples, and in this room here, the disciples of Jesus, and say, I am willing to lay down my life for that person, this person, all these people. How willing are you to lay down your life for the people that are in this room? How willing are you to let go of your personal agenda to embrace the corporate agenda of this place so that we can most effectively make disciples of Jesus who make and mature more disciples? How willing are you to consider others more important than yourself? These are questions that all need to have the same answer if we are to love God. The only acceptable and correct answer to each of these questions is this, completely. I am completely willing, just like Jesus was, to lay down my life for these people. I am completely willing to let go of my personal agenda in order to embrace the corporate identity. I am completely willing to consider others more important than myself. So that means I'm going to make meals for those in need. I'm going to hug my brother and sister and comfort them in their season of sorrow. I will give of my finances to fund important ministry endeavors that we've all collectively agreed upon. I'll even work in the nursery on occasion, right? And the reason why is because I'm completely and wholeheartedly in love with Jesus and I want to show and demonstrate that love to Him by keeping His commandments. And they're not burdensome to me. They're actually my very life. The gates of hell would love to destroy this little outpost of the greater kingdom here at 586 Birch Bay Linden Road. And no church is immune to his attacks, and we don't want to be unaware of his schemes. 
So I want you to hear me say loud and clear as if I was shouting through a megaphone, even though I'm going to share with the seriousness of a hushed whisper. We must not let that happen here. And by God's grace, and by our willingness to obey his commandments, it will not happen here. Don't let the devil divide and conquer here. Do you want to know what's at stake if we don't obey Jesus' teaching in verse 34 of chapter 13 of John? It tells us in the next verse, look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you know what's at stake? Our ability to evangelize a world that's lost in utter darkness and chaos. That's what's at stake if you don't love the people in this room. Well, our light will be extinguished, our lampstand will be removed, and we'll completely blend into the culture and to the society. And if we do not demonstrate a willingness to be self-giving for the good of others here, We've been called into freedom by the extravagant, sacrificial love of God. And Paul says to the Galatians, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So since you are free, he says, don't occupy your time thinking about and plotting and scheming how to make sure that your selfish desires are fulfilled. Instead, think about ways and then actively do something with what you thought about that can benefit somebody else here. Why? Because we want all men to know that we are disciples of the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus looked at his somewhat ragtag group of disciples and he gave them a monumental task of carrying his message to the world. And the way that they would do that is by their demonstrative acts of loving each other that were in that room. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you guys in this room right now love one another. The famous love chapter in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13. It's often used at weddings, but the reason Paul wrote these verses is because he wanted to inform a divided and a disunited church body how they ought to interact with one another. And so he says to them, love is patient, it's kind, it does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And the reason why Paul wrote what he wrote is because he's compelled by the Holy Spirit of God who's noticing that the believers in Corinth were impatient and unkind. They were envious. They were boastful. They were arrogant. They were rude. They were insisting on their own way, and they were irritable and resentful. They reveled in the destruction of others and they crowned themselves as the authority of truth. They weren't bearing with one another. They were giving nobody the benefit of the doubt. And they were just willing to cut their losses and find some other body of believers 
that they would eventually become dissatisfied with because they weren't willing to endure all things. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. And if we want God to be glorified among us and for the broader culture to be evangelized, this cannot be. We must do what Paul wrote the Romans in chapter 12, verse 10. We must love one another with a brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. So as we come to this time of communion, I want to do so with some somber repentance if we've fallen short in any way as it relates to the commandment of Jesus to love one another. And we've been loved so extravagantly by God, and we're going to remember it as we participate in communion. But let's go ahead and take a few short moments just to quietly pray and say, God, help me to embrace the somber reality of what we're getting ready to do here. Let's pray, and then we'll continue on with communion.